Welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today we're going to do a double feature, and probably the weirdest double feature I've done in my 40-odd episodes to date. And I'm huh. we're going to talk about both uh, Serenity and Velvet Buzzsaw, and I'm glad to be joined once again by my friend Fred Cobb, who last joined us way back in October on the First Man Podcast. Fred, how are you doing? Doing good. I mean, not exactly the greatest time to go to the movies, but luckily we have high-scoring, exciting Super Bowl games to keep us busy, right? Yeah, I mean... Oh, wait. Uh, no, that, that, happen, that, right? that, that, that certainly didn't entertain us. I, uh, <laughs> I, saw, I, saw, I saw a sad two-and-a-half-hour uh, Lebanese movie called Capernaum, which was nominated oh. for Best Foreign Film, and it, it was pretty It was pretty tough watch, and it was probably not as tough a watch as the Super Bowl. So uh, that just kind of tells you what kind of Super Bowl we got. But as you said, not exactly the best time for movies, but I'm uh, so I'm very appreciative to have you join me uh, uh, at, at this time of year it's nice to f- find people that are willing to help me get through this time of year until we get to like march where we kind of get the marvel movie start and then we'll have another action movie and then we'll be in the summer so these are a couple of frustrating months even though i think there are actually a few fun things coming out in the next couple months it's just this is like kind of like a, a slow couple weeks thankfully netflix is now like a movie factory so one of the movies we're talking about like i said is velvet buzzsaw which is a netflix movie but we're going to start with serenity which is uh the newest film from writer director stephen knight starring uh one matthew mcconaughey who uh as most people know it had a very uh had a really great run just a few years ago and then kind of like went off the map again after the reconnaissance and i i actually liked him in white boy rick last year and i was like oh well, i guess he did another bad movie because i see this movie poster that i've seen like no promotion for in the theaters and now all of a sudden it's 20 percent on rotten tomatoes and i'm like you know what i'm not gonna waste my time with this one but then i uh i, I reached out to you about for some reason and you said well let me know if you do that um Velvet, or let me know if you do Serenity. I have a lot of thoughts, and I'm like, that's weird. I didn't I know. I feel any- like you're shifting the blame to me here very slowly. I'm that not I blaming you. Watch this. I'm not blaming you. Don't get ahead of yourself. I'm just saying, <laughs> I, I just never thought I was going to see this movie, and I, I was like, huh. When Fred's like, I saw Serenity. I was like, why would anyone see that? It's like the 22 percent on Rotten Tomatoes Matthew McConaughey movie that got dumped during the time where movies get dumped by studios, and then, but then it just became overwhelming on the internet that. All of these people were like, oh my god, this might be like the best bad movie of the year or the, or the, the craziest, most out there movie of the year and you have to see it even if it's bad. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to see it. So hmm. that's how I kind of came to finally just kind of give in and be like, if nothing else, I'll have, it, I'll have a podcast to put out next week. And uh, so, 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 so uh, Serenity, I, I mean, God, I'm not going to – am I really going to try and at least summarize the plot? I guess I'm going to. Uh, it follows a man, a man named Baker Dill who is played by Matthew McConaughey. He was a fisherman on the island of Plymouth. And he has a tuna that he really, really wants to catch. He makes a living taking people out on his boat, like charter fisher trips, charter charter fishing trips. And he often takes the fishing rod from the people paying him to do it so he can try and catch this tuna. He makes a living because he doesn't really make a living do it because he's not very good at the charter thing. He probably doesn't make a great living doing that. So he has to make money by actually catching swordfish, even though tuna is his passion. He supplements that income by pimping himself out to Diane Lane as a gigolo. <laughs> and, uh, and that's just kind of his life. All the people on the island of Plymouth know that he just wants to catch that fish, and he's r- ruining his life when he could be making a good living being a regular fisherman, but he wants to catch that fish. Then his uh, ex-wife, played by Anne Hathaway, shows up and says, my abusive second husband is coming to town in a few days. You're going to take him out on your boat and kill him, and I'm going to give you $10 million. And then it goes from there. And I mean, I, mean, I really – I haven't even been able to muster up the, the wherewithal to formulate and organize my thoughts to do a letterbox review because I left this movie being like, man, what, 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 what was that? So Fred said he had a lot of thoughts. So Fred, 
I'm going to start with you. Uh, why does this movie exist? My question is really why did this movie go awry? Because when you look at it, just from a very um, like holistic point of view, this really should have gone pretty well, right? You have Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway starring. It was like comical. Um, I was like, what Oscar-nominated or Emmy-nominated or really respected actor is going to show up next in this movie? I, I, it was just, I, I started laughing at a certain point when Jeremy Strong showed up. Who I don't know if you watched Succession on HBO. I actually think you'd really like it if you haven't. But okay. he, he's re, he, you probably recognize him from The Big Short, though. You know, he was one of the guys mm-hmm. on Steve Carell's team in The Big Short. He was bald in that. He uh, gives an amazing performance on Succession as like kind of the, the eldest son of the Rupert Murdoch figure. And he's great, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's another good actor in this crazy movie. <laughs> and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that was like – that made me laugh. Every time someone popped up, I'm like, wow, there is so much talent involved. Yeah, and Stephen Knight, I mean, I haven't seen any of his movies. He made two relatively small um, films in England. One of them is called Locke with Tom Hardy. Oh, you, you like Locke. Locke's good. Okay, that's interesting. But I know he's also the um, creative head behind both Peaky Blinders and Taboo, which are both very good TV shows. Mm-hmm. And he attracts pretty big talent uh, to his stuff. I mean, Peaky Blinders, that one starring Killian Murphy and Tom Hardy doing a TV show when he's a big movie star is also pretty impressive, right? So this right. is clearly a guy with good ideas who can get pretty big names um, attached to his projects. And again, Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, those are big A-list caliber stars. He also wrote Eastern Promises, which is like a David Cronenberg movie, which a lot of people really with, like. Uh, Mort- and, Viggo Mortensen, right? Yeah, and he, and he oh, wrote yeah. Burnt, which was the Bradley Cooper movie a few years ago, which got bad reviews, but I actually enjoyed. And so, yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. He's like a legitimate filmmaker like you said and i think you do have to say one thing what he does here is ambitious ambitious isn't always a good thing but i don't think he went into this movie thinking oh i'm going to torpedo this i think he had good intentions with it but his big gimmick just went completely off the rails and let me ask you this right away. Are we going to do spoilers here? I think you have to to really do the film justice, right? Yeah, we can see how far we can get talking about this movie without getting in the spoiler section. But it's such a, there's such a bizarre twist that we're going to have to do it at some point. Right. Then let me just say from the get-go, the premise itself isn't so bad. This at the very least could have turned out to be a very run-of-the-mill kind of thriller in an isolated setting. And we know that Matthew McConaughey is very good playing... Uh, very brooding, gloomy kind of loners. Down-on-their-luck loner types. Yep, drinking, um, a lot of existential monologues about how (laughs) life is and how everything is meaningless and how we're all going to die anyway, so what's the point? Right. I mean, True Detective being exhibit A of that. Mm -hmm. So that's not necessarily a bad role for him to play. And the problem is just that this movie went in a totally different direction than I wanted it to. And I think if Stephen Knight had just stuck to the kind of noir thriller that he's setting up, this might have been an all right movie at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, one thing I'll say about it is that it wasn't boring, you know, and I think that yeah. would be a, that would be a greater crime, even if the movie is not uh, not as coherent as it should ideally be. I never lost interest because the, 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 it drops enough hints throughout the first half of the movie before it takes its turn, where it's like, I know something else is kind of going on here, like. Even just the fact that it takes place on an island called Plymouth, which is presumably some kind of 
some somewhere in maybe the U.S. Virgin Islands or something like that, but you can't even quite place it. Like that. And they don't really weird. ever tell you. They don't really ever specify where it is. Yeah, that that was kind of my guess though. They actually filmed in like somewhere like way out in the Indian Ocean that begins mm-hmm. with an M. Uh, I don't even remember the name of the island. It's called uh, oh, um, Mari Edis or something like that. M-A- oh, Mauritius. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. So really out in the middle of nowhere. Maybe that's how they got these actors to do it. It's like, hey, you get to pay to go live in like this tropical location for a couple months and shoot a movie. Um, Sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, I guess so. And so I guess I was just like, man, like I, I know this movie isn't just going to be about this guy trying to catch a fish. Just what I knew about it going in and the way people. Well, that's I, what I, the old man in the sea is all about, right? Right. So I was like, I, I, work, so, I was like. Uh, Hey, I mean, like, I wouldn't be upset for like a modern adaptation of The Old Man in the Sea, but I, I knew that that wasn't what it was because I just I didn't know anything about the plot. Actually, it was one of the first times I've mm-hmm. gone into a movie knowing nothing about what it was about. Not one thing other than it had Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, and it just had this like crazy reception, and everyone's like, "This is such a out there movie." So that's all I knew. So as you I'm didn't watching, see a trailer. Let me ask you no, this way. I, I didn't even watch a trailer. Okay, very good. So I, I mean, it, it wasn't that heavily promoted. Like I feel like I um. I mean, I, a lot of times when I go to movies, I walk out during the trailers because I, I like to just kind of move around and uh, get some steps in on my Fitbit and uh, f- go to the bathroom and just refill my icy And I, I do all these things, and I have it timed out because it's ex- like exactly 20 minutes of previews at my AMC and at most uh-huh. AMCs, and you can just do that. So, like, there are a lot of times where I just don't watch previews, but, like, I just hadn't even come across any promotional material for this other than like the posters in my movie theater. So yeah. I, I knew nothing and knowing nothing, but also knowing that reception that it got, but then watching a movie about that's seemingly about this guy bumming around an island trying to catch a fish, but like with all these kind of <laughs> odd hints of weirdness here and there the first time the the jeremy strong character the the salesman uh shows up like it's like that's kind of a weird thing that this guy is just like in a business suit when no one else on this island's in a suit like there's so many odd things like that that happen i think there might be one of the flashbacks to his son even before then uh or where it seems like he's hearing something but it's this little Uh hint so knowing nothing else and mostly just hanging out with him bumming around this island it's like I was intrigued just to see where it went. So I, I give the movie points for that, for like at least being like um, deceptive enough in its storytelling to like keep me guessing and not have me zone out. Because I did not zone out at all in this movie. And there are movies that I guess I could say are better movies in the last year where I just – I might have zoned out at some point. Like I zoned out in part of Roma. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, uh, yeah. it, it, it just happens. So if nothing else, Stephen Knight held my attention. Yeah, but I still think the whole setup for what he pulls in the middle is incredibly sloppy. And I think something that's worth talking about when it comes to that is what makes for a good twist? How do you actually set it up to really pull the rug from underneath the viewers late in the game? And I think that there are, I've been doing a lot of thinking on, on this the last couple of weeks, ever since I've seen it. Because the one thing I will give Serenity is that it got me thinking, why did it go so wrong? And I think there are really two kinds of twists. And the first one is a lot more difficult to pull off than the second one. The first one, you give your viewers all the clues throughout the movie. But because they make some sort of false assumption at the very beginning about the very premise, they don't even know that there is really a twist to come. I like that the, kind of movie. And the best, yeah, the best example I can think of is The Sixth Sense. Right. Because you have a very straightforward premise. You know exactly what is happening. But you make an assumption that is never explicitly stated. And then at the very end, you realize oh, wow, I had it all wrong, didn't I? Mm -hmm. The second kind of twist is a little bit easier. That's when you're straight up presented with a false piece of information, and at the end, you find out that it was 
misleading or a straight up lie. Great example of that is The Empire Strikes Back, mm-hmm. where we find out that Ben Kenobi actually lied in episode four and that Darth Vader didn't in fact kill Luke's father, spoiler alert, but is himself Luke's father. I say, I hope there's no yeah. one uh, yeah, at, the risk of spoiling, at the risk of spoiling a 40 year old movie, right? Um, yeah, and I, yeah, and th- those, those often frustrate me. Yeah, but at the same time, Serenity isn't really either because I don't think it ever really clarifies what kind of world we're in enough. It doesn't, read... it doesn't make a statement exactly, like you said, yeah, it doesn't set out yeah. that specific of ground rules. It just drops you in. Yeah, and then all of a sudden it com- pulls a complete 180 on you and you could actually feel the oxygen getting sucked out of the movie theater when this started to happen because people were very clearly there for a totally different sort of movie. Well, did people – did you think that you were watching a supernatural movie at some point? Because there are parts where it seems like he has some kind of telepathic connection with his son. And I'm going to say we're, we're – as far as I'm concerned, we're not in spoiler territory, and I, we, I feel like we can always talk about that because it wasn't a supernatural movie, I would say. Yeah, but at the same time, you still get a sense that something is seriously wrong. Right. Because you're right, Jeremy Strong running around and always talking about how he keeps missing Baker Dill, which, side note, everybody in the movie calls him Baker Dill. He's never just Baker. He's always Baker Dill. (laughs) It's a very cool sounding name, but at the same time, it got kind of funny almost whenever they dropped the name. Yeah. So you do get the sense that not everything is as it seems. And then once the big twist actually happens... I think it's almost too obvious because that one thing you said earlier where you see his son, that kind of gave it away for me too early because then I realized, oh, now I think I understand. Oh, so you, you, you say you, you, you figured out the twist as soon as you saw the son in, this, in the setting in which we – the only setting in which we see the son? Yes, okay. and that's when I actually guessed it, and I don't think that's how you wanted that Yeah, I guess that's revealed. not how it would. I, I would say I didn't quite get it there, and I'll, I'll talk about it when we get to the spoiler section. But I, I would say I do agree with you. It just wasn't – cut together well and maybe written clearly enough and organized in a way that uh totally made that come through and i i I don't want to say you get tonal whiplash but you might just get kind of like story whiplash where it's like man like it's still trying to also still continue to be this thriller movie involving anne hathaway and jason clark even as like it's wanting you to be invested in that part of the story even once the twist has also become kind of evident which i think Uh is kind of a weird choice that it made Right, because at that point, the stakes become very muddled. Yes. Because once you know that the circumstances are very different than you initially assumed, right. a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with at the beginning doesn't really matter that much anymore because all of a sudden the picture has substantially increased. Right. I think we've done a good job of talking around it to this point, so I don't want to really push it any further. But, I mean, it sounds like you would – I mean, I know we're about to get a lot of good movies between the um, – between uh, the new Lego movie, uh, Cold Pursuit, oh. though that it's kind of weird at this point with this Liam Neeson stuff that's come out. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon Three. How to Train Your Dragon Three. I'm very excited for Steven Soderbergh's uh, High Flying Bird that comes out on Netflix uh, this weekend, as or as of this recording, it's this weekend. And uh, yeah, I mean, and then in the beginning of March, you have Captain Marvel and Us. So like, there's a lot of stuff, but like, it sounds like just for someone that wants to like kind of. Uh, see some kind of interesting experiment uh, gone wrong, you would recommend this to someone. Am I right? Definitely. If you have AMC Stubbs A-list and can afford to go to the movies without really spending a fortune on it, then I would say, yeah, hell yeah, uh, watch it because it's really kind of an amazing experiment to see actors like that risk their good name for (laughs) something just this 
incredibly absurd. If two Oscar and winners, uh, Diane, Wayne, Oscar and Don, Diane Wayne and Diamond Hansu are Oscar nominees, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Jason, Clark Jason Clark and Clark, everything, Jason Clark's and everything, and easily could have an Oscar nomination by now. It's like it's just so like it's so weird to see every how many people signed up for this, you know. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing is the writing isn't even that good. Right, and I. I don't know. I would agree. I mean, if you're someone that um, completely understandable, if you're not someone that uh, feels comfortable making the investment in something like AMC A list, but you like movies and you you try and go to maybe a couple movies a month, don't prioritize this. But if you have the time and already have it kind of paid for in advance because you have something like AMC A list, uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of. I don't even want to call it a total train wreck because, like I said, it. I don't know if it's that bad, but it's very. You can't blame someone who does think that, but it is interesting to see where the movie makes wrong turns. Yeah, um, I'd agree with that. All right, we're gonna we're gonna move into this forward section now. So now that you have our kind of quasi recommendation, do with that what you will. Go see it if you want to, if you're intrigued now, and then come back and uh, listen to it talk. Listen to us talk about the rest of it. So now's your chance to jump off the ship, uh, pun intended, Fred. <laughs> uh, so. You said that you uh, we we see the son playing uh, a video game in his uh, in in his home. What what exactly kind of tipped it, tipped it, tipped it off to you that he was uh, a master computer programmer that was like channeling a lot of things into this game? So, just the fact that they kept showing him sitting at his computer was already a pretty big giveaway. And by that point, you already know that something clearly wasn't right. And I've also seen enough Black Mirror episodes, and I've played Assassin's Creed <laughs> to start looking for certain clues. Yeah, this, this kind of was a, a, like a Black Mirror. This could have easily been a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the problem. There's a lot of competition out there for this kind of storytelling. In fact, Jordan Peele is now doing a Twilight Zone reboot, and that's coming out in April. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of these kinds of stories where all of a sudden we're confronted with technology – um, becoming our enemy. And we've always had movies and TV shows like that. I mean, even in the 80s, The Terminator or Blade Runner. But Serenity just wasn't that kind of movie. It wasn't set up as that kind of movie. So then once I started noticing that these kinds of things were going on, I really wasn't about it. I was really hoping I was wrong. I really didn't want it to go in that direction. So you just wanted it to be a revenge thriller, like with the Anne Hathaway and Jason Clark thing? Or what were you hoping for? I think it was... I think it would have been better that way. The thing is, I knew coming in that there was a major twist because oh, that is okay. one thing even like every review kind of made the big headline. Yeah. I didn't know what the twist was, but they all said something happens in the middle that will absolutely shock you and either amaze you or take you right out of the movie. Hmm. Um, and because I was kind of expecting that, I was already starting to look for clues. So maybe that's why it made a little bit more sense to me. Right. But I just didn't really find it all that compelling yeah so i didn't know till i uh until the jeremy strong character like just straight up told him so i, I wasn't as perceptive as uh you in that regard though i clearly like uh, i i i guess i clearly knew that like it the movie was gonna do something else because i was expecting a twist so i guess i like I, I don't know what i thought the jeremy strong guy was gonna be but it was just like this guy is passing himself off as someone that like wears a suit and a job that requires a suit and needs to meet with this guy but guys that wear suits in legitimate jobs like don't show up at people's like places of business at like or places of residence at like 2 a.m so i should i should have figured it out yeah. then that this is like not normal and let me ask you a quick question because yeah. it's been a couple of weeks since i've seen it and this might clear it up a little bit uh, that whole scene where jason clark is on the boat and 
he is talking about that whole scene with the son sitting in front of the computer and he comes into the room. Was that before or after the big reveal? Mm. Because I think it was before. I can't remember. I, uh, uh, you, you mean like where he like comes in and gets mad at the son for playing yeah, games? Exa- yeah, exactly. You know, you know, I think that was before because I, I now I remember thinking at that point I was still thinking it was maybe some kind of like uh, supernatural movie, and I'm like, oh, like the kid is gonna like tell the dad now to like kill him, and it happened before, and that that was like that was like I was t- I was taking that in the moment as like a flashback rather than it when we if we find out it's not flashback everything is concurrent. So at that point I'm thinking that's a flashback that is uh, spurring him to uh, use this telepathic connection with his dad to uh, kill him, and then it becomes apparent that's not exactly the case. But I think you are right about it happening before. Okay. Okay, I just wanted to make sure, because it's been a few weeks since I've seen it, and I wasn't sure if I still had the timeline right on that. Yeah, 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 you're good. But yeah, sorry I interrupted you initially. Oh, no, I, I, I don't really think I was I was going anywhere with that. I was I, I was just saying that, like, that that's where I got tipped off. And I think it's just kind of weird, because the movie, like, feels the need to, like, or maybe I didn't know it was, like, completely a game. Like, at that point, you still don't know exactly how Black Mirror it is. You don't know about him dying in Iraq at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that point, it's like, maybe, like, this is still some actual version of him that's alive, even if he is kind of like in some kind of game, I think. Um, so I, I guess I kind of like, it still wants you to be really invested in like, uh, Baker's moral compass when he really doesn't have one. And I think that's kind of weird. And I think that's part of where it kind of lost that thread that we were talking about earlier, where it doesn't really make that transition as smoothly as it should. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's kind of fascinating about it is that, once you get towards the end and he becomes increasingly more frantic, what you just said is absolutely right. Because he doesn't really have free will, there isn't really a whole lot of stakes in the game itself. And they also don't really explain how the game actually works because you don't ever really see the son playing the game. He just types in a bunch of code. Yeah, he just types a bunch of code in there. Yeah, so was this so initially the whole idea was that this was a fishing game, right? Mm-hmm. And it didn't really have any violence, and then he just programmed in the violence. Yeah, exactly. Oh, also, uh, I, I I hadn't really even thought about this that much till now. Did he program in the sex between his mom and his dad? That was a good question. Yeah, like how much of what goes <laughs> is that on like, is that like him? By, how much control does the boy actually have over the game, and how much is just the programming? being autonomous almost yeah because it's like i, I can kind of see it's a little weird to think about a kid like programming a video game for his mom and dad to have sex but at the same time maybe it's his way of like expressing the fact that he wishes his mom and dad were just still together and, and there's nothing more to it than that uh i, I don't know um it, it's kind of bizarre there's the scene where baker is uh talking to Anne hathaway about how uh, they got together when she was 16, and I mean, if you know too much about actors' ages like I do, then it's kind of creepy because uh, Matthew McConaughey is like 14 years older than Anne Hathaway. Uh, but I, I don't think you're supposed to be thinking about that kind of thing, but it's like it's having this whole conversation about how he was the first man she ever, she was ever with when she was 16, and why can't it be like it was back then, and the war changed me, and it's like I, I do think the movie would have been better served if it was that first kind of movie with the twist that you were talking about where it, it somehow could have uh, – yeah, it could have – dropped all the clues throughout just to kind of make it a little more clear what the functioning of this uh, computer programming actually was and how that manifested itself in Plymouth. Yeah, either you need to make the 
science fiction elements, I guess, of it a little bit more clear. Mm -hmm. Or you just need to drop it all together. Because like I said, this could have easily been just an old-fashioned noir, which always has some uh, overly sentimental dialogue and very intense characters and alcohol drinking loners. So a lot of these characters are actually cliches. And to an extent, that might even be intentional because it is, after all, a video game, right? Mm -hmm. So are these characters just behaving because the program recognizes that that's what a typical noir looks like? We're probably overthinking this at this point. Yeah, I, I, I think we're, thinking, much... we're thinking about it more than Stephen Knight did, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I wonder, because Stephen Knight is actually a pretty good writer. He writes really good, very thoughtful TV shows. Mm -hmm. So this kind of sloppiness and this kind of uh, lack of compelling insight into human nature really isn't very characteristic for him. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking maybe he tried to put a lot of that stuff in here, and he just didn't make it clear enough for people to see, and it just seemed kind of stupid to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I don't know. What do you, you think about the performances? Like, I mean, we, we've, men we've mentioned how amused we are about the fact that, like, all these really highly thought-of actors signed up for this. I mean, do you think they were able to come out of it uh, relatively unscathed and uh, still gave performances where they don't really have too much to be embarrassed about because they did their best in spite of – in service of a very weirdly executed movie? I think for some of them, it doesn't even matter that much because – when was the last time you've really seen Diane Lane and Jumon Honsu in a movie? Yeah, Jumon Honsu was in uh, the seventh Fast and Furious movie, and he was not exactly uh, uh, used as I uh, as well as he could have been in that. And I cannot tell you the last time I saw him before that. So. Yeah, it's definitely been a long time. And I think he does fine here, actually. Mm -hmm. I, th I think whenever he's there, you can get a sense that he's kind of trying to be a more reasonable counterpart to oh he was an Brazil. aquaman i forgot he was one of was the he, he was a, the, apparently the fisherman king i feel like i vaguely remember seeing him there and he's gonna be in captain marvel and shazam uh so oh wow okay so he, he, he somehow like uh all of a sudden just uh popping up in a bunch of stuff uh, but hmm. yeah so good for him it's just kind of funny that like he, he might actually like have another and he's going to be in the charlie's angels movie that's coming out with uh directed by elizabeth Banks, starring kristen stewart so yeah. it's kind of funny like we you hadn't seen him a whole lot recently and now he's just going to like pop up in a bunch of maybe really big time stuff but he just kind of had a stop in uh, mauritius along the way <laughs> yeah and Anne hathaway is going to be just fine she's still a major star she was in oceans eight last year yeah. i feel like she's the kind of actress who has so much clout that she can do no wrong Right, um, right, right. Matthew McConaughey, on the other hand, I'm a little bit more concerned about because, like you were saying, he had a couple of very good years earlier this decade, and then he just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And a lot of the stuff he did, Free State of Jones is another good example, or sea this other trees. one, Sea of Trees, yeah, where uh, which got god awful reviews. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, all of a sudden it seems like he's been taking a few steps backwards, and that's very unfortunate because with the right material, he's a very compelling. Um, and very intriguing actor to yeah, watch. Yeah, everyone's very excited, though, because he has uh, The Beach Bum coming out later this year with the, uh, Harmony Corinne's newest movie. Um, that looks funny. People yeah. might know Har Harmony Corinne from Spring Breakers or writing the movie Kids, um, amongst other things. So everyone kind of thinks that'll always be some kind of return to form for Matthew McConaughey. But I guess he, the last like live-action movie he was in that was like widely considered like good was interstellar and it was oh, wow that was and that was kind of the end of the reconnaissance you know it was um i mean as far as i'm concerned the reconnaissance started with lincoln lawyer then he did richard linklater's bernie 
I never saw Killer Joe, but then he did Mud, Magic Mike, The Paperboy, which is a divisive movie, but like he and Nicole Kidman give pretty great performances in it. Dallas Buyers Club, which is a little controversial in retrospect, but just for the casting choice in the general of having of Jared Leto. People have received a lot of criticism in the movie of itself did, but I think everyone agreed Matthew McConaughey was pretty good, even if it was kind of like a, a straight savior movie where it's like the straight guy saving the gay people. Like There are a lot of retroactive valid criticisms of that movie, but he does act his ass off in Dallas Buyers Club. Then he and got Wolf- the Oscar for it, so yeah, and then that had, definitely increased his cloud yeah. a bit. And then Wolf of Wall Street, Interstellar, and right around the time of the Oscars, that right before there, he had uh, True Detective. So just like an amazing like uh, three year run, and then oh. it just kind of fell off with Sea of Trees, First State of Jones was a voice in Kubo and the Two Strings, which almost bothered me because it was like that movie had so many white people voicing Asian characters, <laughs> and then he was in the under, and then he had, a, and he was like my least favorite part of Sing, which was a fun animated movie about the singing mm. competition with animals, and his character was so annoying. So uh, it's just kind of like a weird five years almost. We're going on five years now with the Beach Bum's not good of him just falling off after that incredible run. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I don't know. Like, I, but I, it's, it's obviously not a good movie if he's just like trying to get something else that like, is well-received. But I don't think he was bad at acting in it. It was just a very weird yep. movie. Um, Jason Clark totally goes for it. Uh, yeah. I think, I, and, I, and I think you just have to in a movie like this. you got to just embrace it and go all out and, if you're, and match the movie's weirdness, and he does. I don't really know about the Anne Hathaway performance. I don't know if that's really my kind of – the kind of character I really think suits her. And maybe she should have gone even more over the top like Jason Clark. But yeah, I don't know. Like I, I'm not going to hold it against any of them really. You know, It's just kind of it, – it's just funny that they signed up for this. And there wasn't like a transcendent performance though that could really elevate the movie to another level or anything like that even if, like we said, these people were fine. Um, yeah, it's a very different kind of misfire than a movie like Holmes and Watson for example. Yeah. Which was just god awful from the get go, poorly written, terrible. Uh, you, so you actually saw Holmes and Watson? God no, I didn't. Uh, but uh, just uh, based on everything I've read yeah, about it. Gotcha. But but Serenity is the kind of movie that with some tweaks might have been significantly better, but it just makes very poor choices along the way that cause it to derail at some point. Yeah, um, last last thing, I, I mean, I know I just kind of went off and talked about the performance, but last thing about the plot, I mean, did you have any thoughts where, like, it, it not like where him throwing Jason Clark off the rail, uh, off the boat, or letting him get dragged off by the shark after he was beat up by the guys that Jiamen Hansu uh, had beat him up so Matthew McConaughey wouldn't go out on the ship? Man, it's a lot going on. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that him getting thrown off is actually the, the real-life manifestation of that is the son, like, killing him. Uh, mm-hmm. like what, what did you think about the movie going all the way to that point? Like, is because that's like a very extreme ending, you know? Yeah. And I don't think it's the kind of movie that really set itself up for that kind of conclusion. This is trying to be taken a lot more seriously than it came off as, you know? Yeah. And that's the problem, right? Because we keep saying here that it's the kind of movie you should watch because it's so bad that it's almost entertaining, but the ending is so serious and makes such a tragic point really about, spousal abuse and child abuse that this is really the total whiplash forget about the twist this just kind of puts um it puts a very sour note on the ending that you can't really square with the mindset that you should watch it to be entertained and get a good laugh out of it right yeah you know We've, we've talked about different ways this movie could have structured itself to reveal the twist better and all that. You know, the one thing I'll say is that I think, you know, if there is some version of this movie where they uh, are is just a lot more consistent and it parses out this information and ultimately reveals the twist at the end, I think in a more 
a sharply organized version of it, you could probably tell a story about abuse and its effects throughout. You know, you could probably actually really have that be a constant thread throughout the movie that just pays off in a in some kind of twist. You know, where you do end up seeing that, like, oh, this has actually been going on in real life, even if we thought it was more just something that Anne Hathaway was talking about. It should have been more than, what I should say is it should have been more than just Anne Hathaway talking about it. It should have paid more than that lip service to it. And you could have actually had this movie that got really weird, but at the same time had some interesting message about the effects of abuse. And uh, instead you have, you have like the one scene where Jason Clark wants to beat her up and that's it, you know, and one scene in him walking in on the kid and it's just there to show that, yes, she wasn't lying. And that's basically it. And make you, I think it's there more there to make you be like, yeah, maybe Matthew McConaughey should just kill him. And I think it should serve more of a purpose than that. I mean, I will give Jason Clark a lot of credit when it comes to that, because as you were saying already, I think he really plays the part in a way where you just flat out hate the guy and kind of want him to fall overboard at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think he does a pretty good job with that. But the other thing is, and I was just looking this up, the movie is only 106 minutes long. And I didn't really need it to go on for much longer. In fact, I was perfectly content when it was finally over. <laughs> but those extra 20, 30 minutes that a more serious film might have taken to really flesh things out might have really benefited this kind of premise. Yeah, I agree. Um, again, uh, before we sign off, I, I, again, I, I'll reiterate, like we said before, if anyone listened to this point, they probably saw it because there's no point in listening to all the way to this point in the podcast if you didn't see it. Um, but if, if you want, if your friends are asking for something to go see that, and they you think this might be something they would like or they like seeing interesting failures, then yeah, tell them to see it. But I don't really have a lot else to say. Do you have any final thoughts, Fred? Yeah, if you've been busy catching up on Oscar releases and feel like you've been subjecting yourself to too much intelligent, sophisticated filmmaking, <laughs> um, this is a perfect palate cleanser. So if it's still playing at your local movie theater, which it probably won't, um, yeah, tell your friends to go see it. They might have a great time with it. Who knows? Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to talk about a movie that's only slightly less weird now, and that's uh, Netflix's Velvet Buzzsaw. It's the newest film from Dan Gilroy, who uh, made his directorial debut uh, a little over four years ago with Nightcrawler, which also starred Jake Gyllenhaal. And he, he received an Oscar nomination for screenwriting for that, actually. And uh, then he uh, made Roman J. Israel Esquire, the Denzel Washington vehicle, which I really wanted to like but just didn't really care that much about. And But it got Denzel an Oscar nomination. And now he's back with something that's, man, uh, way more disturbing than Nightcrawler, which is disturbing in its own right and obviously way weirder than uh, – Roman J. Israel, which was just kind of about a, a lawyer that was maybe somewhere on the spectrum. Velvet Buzzsaw is about a the art scene in L.A. It star, Jake Gyllenhaal plays a character by the name of Morph Vandewalt, and there are a lot of names <laughs> that are uh, way out there in this movie. So I'm going to be like constantly having to like look at my notes here to like make sure I'm pronouncing them right. But Morph Vandewalt plays an art critic who is friendly with a gallery owner named Rodora Hayes, played by Renee Russo, wife of writer-director Dion Gilroy. And she has an employee at her art gallery by the name of Josefina, who has had a relationship with Morph in the past. Morph is bisexual and has a live-in boyfriend uh, by the name of Ed, but he clearly isn't totally feeling his relationship with Ed because he soon begins a relationship with Josefina. And later on, Josefina comes across a dead man in her apartment building by the name of Ventral Dees. She walks into his apartment and discovers a whole entire collection of paintings that Dees has made. She she decides that she's going to go kind of in with Rodora on this 
partner with her to sell these paintings that she's now claimed as her own. Uh, Morph, because that is a thing that art critics do apparently, is going to write the promotional materials for them and write a book about ventral <laughs> D-study researches. And as people start buying these photographs or these paintings, um, the paintings start killing people. So, Fred, first I'll ask you, are you an art guy? Do you, like, go to art museums and have thoughts about paintings and things like that? Because I'm not. Um, yeah, occasionally. I yeah. spent five hours at the Louvre at one point okay. and uh, kept looking at a lot of the big paintings that they had there. So I can get excited about art, but I'm not the sort of guy who can sit in front of a single painting for five hours, stare at it, and keep getting new things out of it. Yeah, and that... I'm also not really into modern art, right? I enjoy a nice da Vinci painting, but like a sculpture made out of wire... That isn't really what I would consider art. Yeah, you know, I'm not a big art guy at all, and I'm also not a big horror movie person. I mean, hmm. I, I've, I've, I've expanded my horizons as I've been doing the podcast because I felt like I couldn't credibly do a podcast and just, like, write off a whole genre. I really – I used to just never, like, watching horror movies, and I, I still don't really know if I'm, like, a tr really big fan of, like, traditional slasher movies, uh, though I really enjoyed watching the first Halloween uh, when I went back and rewatched it for the first time in a long time before the new one came out last fall, and – uh, but I think like the first Halloween is way less slashery than people remember it. And I, I, I kind of just have this – I'm trying to work this stereotype of horror movies out of my head where it's just people getting slashed. And hmm. I, I still approach them with apprehension, but I like how they can be something else than, than that stereotype of a slasher horror movie. Like I really did like Get Out. A24 has done a few of these with It Comes at Night. Um, Hereditary was really a more of a, almost more of a, a family drama at times than a horror movie and different things like that where they can have a different spin on being something different. But at the same time, not a huge horror fan, not a huge art guy. So I was kind of skeptical, but I mean, it was there on Netflix and I like a lot of these actors. So I'm like, you know what? I'll give it a shot. And, you know, I, I really liked it because, um, I didn't love it, but like, I still enjoyed getting ex exposed to like this whole entire side of society that I knew nothing about. And it's kind of interesting to learn about a subculture like the art community. And I thought the horror elements of the movie, and I think we're just going to spoil it. It's a horror movie. People die. I mean, I think everyone's going to, by the time people listen to this, if they'll be able to get it on Netflix if they want because everyone has Netflix. So I'm not doing a spoiler section for this one. I, I thought that the paintings killed them in interesting ways, and it was entertaining <laughs> and, and felt unique from what you think of when you go to a traditional movie that, where people get picked off. And I thought that that combination of not being totally all in on like something that's like too trying to dissect what any kind of art piece means, but also not being like all traditional horror and having a different spin on the horror elements with the way this thing killed it, killed people. I kind of liked it. And I, I listened to an interview with Dan Gilroy, though, and I think you could take from this movie what you want. And if you appreciated it on the level he wanted you to, good for him. I think he, he really wanted to say something about the intersection of art and commerce. Was that something you found yourself thinking about during the movie? So that's actually, I think, the part I really took away from it because I, I didn't really care for the horror elements that much. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, the movie was a more sophisticated Final Destination movie, right? Where the characters do something really stupid and as a result, they all get picked off one by one. And in this particular case, it's that they end up profiting off of an art collection that was meant to be destroyed. And they're not doing anything oh. stupid because who can expect the painting to kill you? Well, but they were told to throw it away, right? They uh, disregarded the guy's wishes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, obviously they probably uh, didn't think that something like this would happen, but they still did something they weren't supposed to. They still got caught with the hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. But I do think that the satirical elements, the comedy, mm -hmm. that stuff really worked for me, actually. Yeah. 
Um, and a big part of that is Jake Gyllenhaal, actually. Um, I will you, say... Did you see Okja? I did, yes. Yeah, so he, he, this, this is the second straight Netflix movie in which he's just, like, gone for it, if you, if you will. Oh, and he does that a lot. I actually saw Zodiac for the first time a couple of yeah, months. Yeah, he's, he, he's, uh, weir- about a year ago. he's weirder than you remember him being if you watch it for the first time in a while. Right, and famous last words, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character starts writing a book. Because once he starts investigating and researching, the guy tends to go berserk. And in this particular movie, it's the exact same thing. He gets increasingly nervous. He starts hallucinating or not. I mean, we don't really know. Um, He starts yelling and screaming at people. His eyes start popping out of their sockets. And it's really fun to watch him uh, do this kind of thing. And yeah, he's a very typecast actor when it comes to this sort of stuff. But he's also really damn good at it. But Morph Vanderwalt is not really like any character you've ever seen before. So it, it almost feels weird to say typecast. I mean, you might pick Jake Gyllenhaal to go play someone that weird. But it certainly doesn't feel like anything you've ever seen before, which I, I think is nice. Because it's just fun to watch him say really weird things and uh, scratch his chin while looking at art and then saying some random observation. Um, it's the same kind of it's the same kind of painting, but with a different brush and different colors. Yeah, he fully inhabits that character. Though. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's 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 interesting because like I don't I don't. If you would have asked me to like think about what like an what an art exhibition would look like, I I just don't know those people. You know, I'm not in that world. And I so I, it's it's kind of interesting to really enjoy a satire of something where you don't know what it, the thing it's satirizing all that well. But I really did. And I, I just enjoyed watching all these people run around, hearing the ridiculous names. I forgot to mention that the, the rival gallery owner to uh, Redora is named John Don Don. And uh, both she and John Don Don fight over David Diggs's Dom Riche to be uh, like a, nice. an artist that exclusively shows their art in their galleries. And it's this uh, – I feel like Dan Gurley does do a pretty good job of like uh, at least conveying who all these people are. So you – and Tony Collette, I should say, also say – um, uh, plays a, an employee of an art museum who goes to work as a consultant for an art buyer, which uh, who knew that was a job, but apparently it is. You right. can just tell them what to buy. Her name's Gretchen, so there is one person with a regular name in this movie. And and yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like they, they they all pop up around at this first art gathering um, at the Art Basel in Miami, which is a big art museum in Miami, I guess. I was about to ask, since you live in South Florida, is that something you've ever visited? Do you yeah. actually know about it? No, I mean, I, I'd heard of it, but I've never actually like been there and i mean i guess the movie does make me kind of curious to go there and look at stuff i guess i mean i've i've been to winwood which is the kind of the artsy section in miami but art basel i think is actually on miami beach not in okay. winwood and so it's it, it, i feel like it should be something i should do someday if, if i'm still living here and feel like being really fancy i suppose but <laughs> i i enjoy just like drop being dropped into the world seeing them all interact at this other party at some house on south beach and learn exactly how people talk and how they talk about money and things getting bought and then things needing to be sold back because uh there's a cash flow issue or whatever the reason was that gretchen is wanting to sell the deces back i forgot exactly what she had but she wants to put it back in the museum where she had been working and uh i don't know i i i I didn't think a lot about any kind of message he was trying to make about art and commerce but i certainly enjoyed watching how that world worked which is i think pretty important because there's a lot more of that stuff in this movie than there actually is killing even if i did think the killing was kind of unique which i appreciated and the other thing that i found kind of interesting especially us doing a podcast right now there's also i think a very clear point he's making about 
art criticism and just and movie criticism as well in that sense because Morph is the kind of guy who can make or break an exhibit uh, by simply writing about it. Yeah, I don't have and that power yet, but I I, quite, I, 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 quite, I, I plan to be there, and I'm going to totally tank the next movie of someone who uh, I just don't like. But yeah, go, right. go ahead. <laughs> I mean, we're not quite there yet, obviously, but of course, we do. There has been this perception that a terrible Rotten Tomato score can be devastating for a movie. So mm-hmm. these people have a lot of influence, and the problem is a lot of them, obviously don't quite have the same understanding as the people who create the artwork as opposed to the ones who are evaluating it. Um, there's this really funny scene where the, um, what was the, the gallery owner's name? Oh, John Dondon, right? Yeah. So he walks in and he looks at a pile of trash bags and he says, oh, is that your latest artwork? Oh my God, that was hilarious. I forgot about yeah, that. Oh yeah, see, that's the kind of satire I really enjoyed. That was really yeah, funny. Yeah, he actually thought that was the art. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's the whole point, I think, that Dan Gilroy is also making, that a lot of times people don't really understand art, but they're so pretentious that they still try to talk as if they really got something out of it. Right. And I think sometimes that is also an issue with um, reviewing movies, reviewing art, reviewing music, that as a critic, you look at the product and you're kind of afraid to be left out because you didn't really get it. And as a result, you still try to kind of find things that interested you. Yeah, and I haven't I haven't read too much about I, I haven't read a lot of reviews about this. Maybe I've just had a busy week at work, and I I, I kind of like both. I, I like the differences when I go into podcasts having both read reviews or not read reviews because I don't want to become too tainted by what other people have said or uh, try and uh, ape too many of their uh, points. But at the same time, I do like how criticism can help me think about things differently. But so I don't know if anyone's made this point really. But I mean. Just the fact that, like, you, you know, as you mentioned, Deese didn't want his art sold. He didn't want it, obviously, he wanted it thrown away, and he never sold it himself. He lived off the grid. And then, it, it's, it, I mean, it is implied that, like, the people that are trying to, only the people that are trying to profit off of it are the are the ones that die, you know? I mean, and most of the people do die in this movie, but the uh, Natalia Dyer from Stranger Things, she plays uh, Coco, who is just someone that, like, somehow never actually... Uh, is just always around to take a job from someone else because the people she works for keep dying. So yeah, and someone, she finds all the dead yeah, people and screams whenever, a lot. But she, whenever she needs it, someone needs a new assistant, she's there because her boss has died. <laughs> um, and or, or, or actually, she gets fired because from by by Redora for letting someone into the art gallery. But uh, her next two bosses die, and that's just kind of like what happens. But she doesn't die herself. Uh, she's more pure. She's not. She's just trying to like make it in LA and not have to move back home. And she, she survives. And I think, uh, John Malkovich's character survives Piers. He's just an artist there trying to do his own thing as does the David Diggs character. They're just kind of tertiary figures that are show, showing kind of how these larger players in the art game are using other people. And the ones that are trying to use other people and kind of exploit the art for their commercial gain, uh, that kind of leads to their downfall. So I don't know if down girl is necessarily like trying to exactly say anything by that or if he's just trying to like make a fun horror movie but it is certainly interesting to think about like i mean if you become too invested in the commercial nature of art it is the, does the death that these characters suffer kind of symbolize like maybe like the death that your creative work is ultimately going to suffer if you are thinking more about dollar signs than like the printed word or the the visuals you create on a screen so i mean i like thinking about that even if i haven't really fully processed that or seen if a lot of other people have kind of dove down that rabbit hole yeah and i think that we've seen 
characters like Ventral D's in real life as well. Um, a good example would actually be Harper Lee. You remember a couple of years ago when she was already, I think she had dementia or Alzheimer's, and um, her publicists were trying to get Go Set a Watchman out there. Right. And she made it very clear that this is not something she ever wanted published because she felt it was an incomplete version of yeah, it wasn't even like an, it wasn't even like an anti-capitalist line of thought she had. She was just like, "Look, I I don't want to make money off of it, even though I know I'm Harper Lee, and I've anything I put out there is going to make a shit ton of money. Like, yeah, I, I I would rather not have something that's not my best out there. Yeah, exactly. And I think artists, whether they're writers, I thought you were going to say Banksy. Hmm? I thought you were going to say Banksy because you you see that thing last year where like Banksy doesn't like when his art gets sold and someone tried to sell something at an auction. Oh, and, and it got shredded, and, and, he, yeah. and he put it in a frame to like make it self destruct. So also a great example. So yeah, I'm sure that also played a part in Dan Gilroy's um, creative Calculus. process yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah so for sure. I, so I, I do think actually I didn't really consider any of that because I only watched it last night, and I guess I hadn't really wrapped up all of my thoughts. But the right. more we talk about this, the more I think I really appreciate some of the more subtle um, social critiques that Dan Gilroy decided to include here. Yeah, Billy Magnus. We didn't talk about the Billy Magnuson character who's like kind of a, an employee of Rodora's gallery. She kind of like tells him to transport some of the paintings somewhere. He decides he's going to steal them, and, and then he dies soon after. So, I mean, everyone that tries to profit off of uh, Deesa's things, they die. We don't get a great explanation for it, and I don't really think we need one. It's kind of fun just to leave it open-ended, you know? And <laughs> We don't get an explanation, I guess, exactly as to like what, why this, why these things do have these supernatural powers. But um, it is interesting to think how that's connected to any of Deesa's wishes as a person, and how much of it is from his own internal demons that he fought with, because um, they make it clear that this guy didn't lead the best life. Um, yeah, not at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, it was fun. I, uh, I, I just don't know. Like, I mean, I, I, I would say the reason I maybe didn't give it overall higher marks is because even if I did enjoy learning about that world. And I kind of knew what was coming with the paintings. It did. It felt. I don't know. I felt the movie might have like lacked a little bit of direction in that first half. Mm -hmm. Not with that. Notwithstanding, even if I did enjoy the world building, and I, I guess I, I don't want to say I zoned out, but at times I was like, ah, man, wh where is this going? This is kind of like taking a while to get to the point. Um, and then it actually it does feel like it wraps up very fast. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I, maybe it's just a pacing thing for me, but, um, and also that it, it may be, they maybe aren't my favorite genres to begin with, even if I did kind of, like I explained earlier, there were things I could take from both parts. So I definitely recommend it. And again, it's, it's a Netflix thing. So it's, it's easier to just check it out than when you don't have to make the trip to the movie theater. Uh, still, I highly re recommend people going to movie theaters as much many movies as Netflix is putting out. <laughs> I, I still want the movie theaters to do well. I don't know, Fred, do you have any more thoughts about Velvet Buzzsaw? Yeah, something I think. It's kind of interesting to point out is that this movie actually just premiered last week at Sundance. And right. as, I think high, as did High Flying Bird, the Soderbergh movie that's going to be put out one week after this one on Netflix. Yeah, and I think that it's becoming more and more interesting as a um, way to start out the year because a lot of times these small independent productions by fairly new filmmakers end up making quite a splash. Last year you had Eighth Grade, which came out of Sundance and became almost a little bit of a cult hit. Um, I just saw it recently, and I thought it was fantastic. I also really liked Leave No Trace. Right. So, was Leave No Trace Sundance? That was also Sundance, yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting, like you said, what I, what I thought was interesting was that it, just, it, that it literally got put on Netflix like that fast after Sundance, um, which I guess happened uh, in 2017 with... 
uh, I don't want to live in this world anymore. Yes, which won the Grammy like Prize, that. and then got yeah with the Macon Blair movie uh, with Elijah Wood mm-hmm. and uh, Melanie Linsky. That got that got put out pretty soon after. That was the first oh, time yeah. I remember that happening, where Netflix made a big splash or something, and then it was like you were able to see it way quicker because I was just so used to stuff coming out like very early at Sundance, and then like hearing about it all year, like Manchester by the Sea. That was a Sundance movie. If it even doesn't seem yep. like your typical Sundance movie, just because it's very heavy, uh, that that was something that just like didn't come out till literally. I don't think I saw it till December and it premiered in January. Same thing with Call Me By Your Name last year. That was a Sundance movie. I just had to like hear about it all year and have to wait, wait, wait. So I mean, yeah. Or the other another one, interestingly enough, is Mudbound, and that was a Netflix movie, and that right. one didn't come out until later in the year as well. Yeah. So I don't, I, I, I don't like that. Like that's my least favorite part of like award season. It's like all these critics that see stuff at festivals, and then I have to like avoid hearing too much about it to spoil me because I don't, I just don't like getting stuff spoiled. And so I mean, a lot of there, there are some critics that kind of turn their nose up at Netflix and don't like how. Um, you know, just like how they're, uh, they've said things or they, it's, they think they're trying to like kind of just kill the theater industry. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. I just think they want to like figure out a way to like really sustain and build a library so they can raise their prices. Uh, but I, and I think also Quaron did said it very well after the Golden Globes because he got that question from a journalist about whether he feels the artistic value of the film was diminished by being released on Netflix as opposed to a traditional theatrical release. He, and someone and else might not said, have given him the resources to do it. But I'm sorry, what did, he, what, what did he say? Remind me, because I watched that clip. He essentially said that it's pretty amazing to think that a Mexican film um, completely with subtitles, black and white, um, got this kind of interest from the masses. And it's very true that people probably would not have gone to the movie theater to see it, but because it's accessible on Netflix and you don't have to pay for it. Right. Um, you can reach a much bigger global audience. Or if it wasn't and, on Netflix, only people in like Miami and LA and New York and maybe a couple other big cities would have seen it. I, I actually drove all the way to um, my, uh, Miami to watch Roma so I could see it on a big screen. But I, I, sometimes I do think people that have the means to go to the theater but choose to only watch stuff on Netflix instead, that does kind of bother me because like I want I think people should like diversify their experience if they can afford to do so. But there's some people that can't and some people that are just really busy and it might be hard to get to the theater. Not everyone literally lives a stone's throw from a movie theater like I do. Uh, and I think it's good that they can have access to these kind of movies and be able to see a Steven Soderbergh movie or see a Quran movie they wouldn't otherwise see. So, or or the, just the fact that Netflix is bankrolling like a lot of like mid tier like mid budget movies that just don't quite get made that much by studios anymore. And I think there's a space for everything. And I think it's cool that Velvet Buzzsaw ended up like getting made and might not have been able to be made in this form or looked as good as it did if it had to go somewhere else to a studio without as big of a budget. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it's cool that Netflix is, has this kind of release schedule where they are getting these movies from good filmmakers and making them available very quickly as opposed to, like we said, with that award stuff where, you know, like some of these studios might bring their thing to Sundance and then we just have to hear everyone else talk about how great it is for 11 months. Um, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. All right. Well, Fred, I think that that about wraps it up. Um, if if people want to uh, read more of your thoughts on movies, uh, can you give me your letterbox information? Of course. Uh, my name on letterbox is Fred Kolb. That's F R E D K O L B. Um, I just broke a hundred followers recently, actually. So I'm pretty excited about that. So. Yeah, Fred does like I, I said this the last couple of times Fred came on, but Fred likes like writes like very thorough, very well thought out reviews, and I think I've had my letterbox for like. 
a year and a, maybe at least a year longer than Fred, and like I have like thirty followers. So it shows you like how how much thought Fred puts into it. That just by writing long reviews, people want to follow him on Letterbox. I write something about all the movies I see, but uh, I just don't take the time or effort to like do it as eloquently as Fred. So highly recommend following Fred if you have a Letterbox and aren't already following him. As usual on Twitter, I'm at Josh Jernovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y. Twitter and Letterbox, it's the same thing, J O S H J U R N O V O Y. So you can check me out there. Thanks for listening. We got a lot of stuff coming out. We got going to have some some stuff on Lego Movie 2, on High Flying Bird, on Happy Death Day 2, and Alita Battle Angel because I promised our friend Josh Brown that I would see that with him, and I told him I'll see that if you go see Happy Death Day to you. So a lot of stuff still coming despite the fact that it is kind of one of the slower times of year. The movies are putting out just enough stuff to keep us going and going to have an awards podcast coming too that will post sometime before the Oscars. So thanks for listening. Stay tuned for all that. We'll see you next time.